The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Sometimes I hear from folks, and I think it's, you know, it's just, it's a, not a small thing, you know, that they've been coming to Common Ground for years, and they come, they do their sit, they hear a talk, and then they leave and never connect. And we've tried to get better at creating opportunities. Some of you know there's a tea time before the Sunday evening programs, for example, time to get to know folks. And Brad organizes a cleaning time that's semi-social. People generally are chatting when they're doing stuff. But sometimes you just have to stick your neck out a little bit and actually introduce yourselves and have a conversation with someone and maybe even meet somebody before a program and have tea or dinner or meet somebody after a program. And uh, those of you who've been cultivating the practice for a while and intending, resolving, tonight we're talking about resoluteness, resolving to be a more awake, a more mindful, present person, it's not the cultural stream. So if we're really interested in doing this, then the most important thing, actually surprisingly more important than getting yourself up in the morning and doing your formal practice, if you really want to do it and you're in it for the long haul, the most effective thing you can do is start having friends who are into the practice. Because then you will get up and practice if your friends are doing it, you know. So it's it's just about understanding the actual causes for changing our life who we are around, who we relate to, helps in terms of changing our habit energies. So keep that in mind as you walk out of the building tonight, even those who are introverted, that you just might say hi and get to know some folks. The the best way or the most likely way you're really going to connect with people is sign up for a residential retreat and then agree to carpool out to the residential retreat and back with people. Because there's nothing like driving the hour and a half or whatever it is to one of our retreats or any retreat really, and then driving back and being in the car, having had that shared experience. It's really uh, a great time to get to know another person and make a connection that generally lasts for a while. Or you could volunteer at the center. (laughs) That's another good way. But anyway, we're starting to a new topic tonight. Um, we, we've been looking at this list in the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis, Ten Paramitas, usually translated as the Ten Beautiful Qualities of the Heart or the Ten Perfections of the Heart. Because in the tradition, it's thought of as the personality qualities or the underlying qualities of mind that allow somebody to become a Buddha, a fully awake, beautifully compassionate and wise human being. And as I've been saying over the probably 10 months now that we've been working through these 10 qualities, we would probably brainstorm these same 10 qualities as have existed in the tradition now for several thousand years. So there's generosity and this commitment to non-harming. Sometimes we call that morality. And there's energy, the capacity to persist, there's wisdom, there's renunciation, the capacity to let go, to live simply, to be content, there's 
patience, there's equanimity, there's kindness, there's truthfulness, which we just finished last week, and resoluteness, that might be 10, close to 10 at least. So those are the these beautiful qualities of the heart. And we're just moving our way through. Those of you who want a little bit more background, you can get a hold of one of the two books that some of you have been looking at. One you can just download on the internet for free. A lot of the uh, monks and nuns, when they write books, they don't go through normal publishers because they don't can't have money. So their books are just online for free. So this one by Ajahn Sushito, a British Buddhist monk, um, S-U-C-I-T-T-O. And it's just called Parami, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. So this one you can find online. If you have trouble, just contact the office finding it. And then this one's a regularly published book, now in softback, Sylvia Borstein's book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. She's a well-known Buddhist author and teacher in this tradition of Buddhism out in California. So um, two great reference books for this study. And as I mentioned, we're picking up the theme, the study of resoluteness or determination. And for a lot of us, when we hear that word, it's kind of effort on steroids, and it tends to trigger a lot of ego involvement. Like if I'm going to be determined, if I'm going to be resolute, that means I personally really care, really want. But you probably know if you've been studying or practicing for a while that the way the Buddha talks about the mind and talks about developing this practice of awakening, it doesn't, it can't actually involve a strong sense of self, like volitional self-energy, right? Because the Buddha says as you begin to look in a more refined way, you don't actually find that self who's going to make that effort. All you find are a lot of overlapping natural processes, personality tendencies. You don't find the mark who's going to be resolute, who's determined to make these changes in his life. It seems on the surface that there is this mark who's determined to diet or determined to break this habit to be free of addiction or to start meditating every morning or to, you know, become green and or to pay attention to the systemic origins of racism that I'm embodying in my conditioned personality, being born out of this culture, right? We can be quite determined from this personal point of view, like I don't want to be a racist, or I don't want to gain weight, or I don't, you know, I want to practice meditation. But how many times in our life have we learned that just because I really want something doesn't actually lead to the change, right? Have you noticed? (laughs) How many times we're pretty clear that I want to change, I want to become a better person, but we don't actually get the change we want. So determination or resoluteness has this particular quality of mind. And these paramis, these ten qualities, when they're developed, they have a real power. And, you know, we've met people with some of these powers who are just, they seem naturally and powerfully generous or naturally powerfully wise, naturally powerfully ethical, kind, equanimous, right? Any of these ten qualities. And also people who can be naturally 
um, resolute. But it's not, if it's a healthy resoluteness determination, it's not this ego thing. A spiritual resoluteness comes, it has to be in a Buddhist tradition or a Buddhist sense, it's going to be an organic thing. So how does resoluteness arise organically? Well, when when we get interested in actually being happy, a wise person doesn't try to be happy. A wise person gets interested in, well, what, when I am happy, what are the supporting causes? What actually led to these moments of my heart being light, feeling connected, feeling loving, or feeling skillful? What actually supported that beautiful quality? So that's a good, actually it's a good definition of wisdom. Wisdom is that quality of the mind that understands that if I want something, I should study the underlying root causes for that coming to be. So, if we want that kind of determined, resolute power, it's really about knowing, like if we actually, I mean, just imagine <clears throat> we have spent some time in our life connecting the dots and we have seen without a doubt, and I mean that like really without a doubt, we've seen it enough times from enough angles that without a doubt that when I relate in this way, when I aim my attention in this way, when I respond to certain situations in this way, my heart feels really open and released and light and clear and loving, right? And I've seen it enough times. <clears throat> Don't you think that my heart, my mind would naturally, resolutely live according to what I've seen leads to that experience of happiness? I wouldn't have to say, Mark, try really hard to do that, right? We would just naturally start doing it. You see this. <laughs> we, had a, we have an advisory group, Common Ground Does, of people kind of representing the diversity of our larger Common Ground community, <clears throat> just kind of uh, helping us to look at some of these systemic unconscious ways that you know, we perpetuate some of the cultural blindness that uh, that oppresses people so that the place, common ground, the teachings can be more accessible. And so we were meeting today over at Kyoko Katayama's house. Uh, she's one of our teachers here. She has a dog, Luna. And, you know, it's very clear that this dog, Luna, very quickly knew who was going to give her food as we were eating our meal together, you know, who was going to give her food under the table. And that's who she hung around with. She didn't have to, like, make a resolute, you know, I'm going to be with this person. So it's the same sort of thing. If we make the effort to connect the dots, what actually leads to happiness, what actually leads to suffering, the resolute, determined, powerful commitment to avoid the causes for suffering and to develop the causes for happiness, 
that resolute energy is there. It, there doesn't need to be this sort of me. I mean, we might construct this idea that I'm doing it, but it's nature that does it. In the same way, you know, there isn't like a Luna somewhere in that dog, that essential Luna person, you know, or being that is sort of hanging, you know, making her hang around these people. It's a natural process, right? So, and we're not, you know, we're fortunate because we have these wise teachings. So the Buddha even says, hey, you want to know what the causes for suffering and the causes for happiness are? I mean, he gives us three things that he says, and this is for us to check out. And I bet a lot of people in the room can confirm what the Buddha said. He says, there are three <coughs> direct and unavoidable causes for happiness. And the opposites would be unavoidable causes for unhappiness. And the Buddha says there's nowhere you can hide. Like if you cultivate these causes for happiness, happiness will find you. He said, it doesn't matter where you hide, what you do, it, you will reap the consequences of your actions, whether it's good karma or bad karma, you know, causes that lead to suffering or causes that lead to happiness, it will find you. And I think it's useful to open our minds, not to believe in rebirth, but just have an open mind about things. Because those of us who have done unskillful things in our life, we might think, you know, if I'm really careful, I'll avoid the repercussions of that bad action. You know, I'll get to the end of my life. We, we think that way, that somehow... I can li- live a stingy life or I can live a, you know, whatever kind of life and I'll get away with it. But we don't know. I mean, I'm assuming people don't know. I don't know what happens at death. But I do know from just observing my own mind that it's skillful to imagine that we don't get away with anything. It's skillful. Like, not it, not skillful like... Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a better person, so Santa Claus is going to deliver better presents. But I feel better with that attitude that I don't get away with anything. It's not like uh, an oppressive feeling. Oh, now I got to be good. But in taking responsibility, that inner, like in Buddhism, morality is an inner. Uh, it arises from an inner understanding. It's not opposed, imposed rather from the outside. Somebody telling us what's skillful and unskillful. We know because if we do something unskillful, the imprint in our own heart, in our own mind stream, if we're aware, if we have a refined awareness, we'll, we will feel the effect of the unskillfulness. So, when we say something's unskillful, it's because we see directly the effect it's, ha- it's having on the mind stream. It doesn't matter if somebody says to us, oh no, that was fine what you did. You weren't unskillful. Because if we look, if we have a balanced and refined attention, we'll know what effect it has on the mind. So if we have this attitude that it matters, And then we can check out, like from a wise person like the Buddha. Well, the Buddha says, 
guaranteed. Now, we'll check it out for ourselves, so we don't want to just believe it on faith. He, but he'll say, I guarantee it, you know, if you cultivate a generous heart, happiness will follow you. I guarantee it, right? So that's something, you know, paraphrase of what the Buddha might say. And this we probably know already. If you cultivate a stingy heart, guaranteed you'll be unhappy. So we can check that out. I mean, we can directly check that out. It doesn't even take us a long time. Like, if you really put your mind to it tomorrow, if you just spent the first half of the day cultivating stinginess and the second half of the day cultivating generosity, you'd have a lot of data by the end of the day, right? And then if you paid attention for a couple of weeks, your confidence, like whether that's true or not, would probably be unshakable. It wouldn't matter if I told you, people had told you, other people told you, told you that stinginess is fine, you know, because it's a dog-eat-dog world. And, you know, if you try to be generous, where does it end? Right? That's always, that's always the line you hear when, usually from our own mind, you know, like, oh, no, I, I don't want to go down that road because where does it end? You know, you start being generous and then there's just too much need out there. I'd like to help, but where does it end? So what we want is not to do it, not to decide this abstractly, like, because I don't know where generosity ends, I'm going to assume it's not the way to happiness. It's the way to ending up with nothing, right? So what we do is we actually want to explore it. So just on the margins, just where you can, practice a little generosity, relaxing the grip of stinginess, challenging the stinginess, and all the little ways that it manifests in our life. I always joke, but it's a real issue for me. I'm with my partner, my spouse, and we're having dessert, and we cut it. I feel the desire to have the bigger piece. And, and I see how, my, how manipulative my mind is, like giving her the bigger piece, but somehow pointing it out. So she'll say, no, no, honey. <laughs> I mean... It goes deep. And I have my reasons. You know, I was the middle child of seven kids. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my parents grew up in the Depression, you know, in, in the Dust Bowl and farms. And so they kind of have this, you know, quality. They had this quality. So I'm, I've got that in me. And so, but the thing is, I'm responsible because when I act on stinginess, this is the heart that suffers. And when I you know, work on that edge and explore the possibility of being generous, this is the heart that benefits. Maybe there are reverberations out there. Probably there are, but I can see it directly in my own heart. So that's the first thing. And then when we study something like generosity versus stinginess and all the little ordinary ways in our life, and we study it, then we have the data then the resoluteness to be a generous person, it comes out of the data. It doesn't matter what the Buddha said it or that people tell us, your kindergarten teacher told you you have to share. We want to share because the mind understands it as a cause for happiness. And then we actually start to look like how we can be generous. Like, oh, I'm going to let that person in. You know, I see the car wanting to merge in. 
I really have the right of way. But I'm going to do this not to be a good person, but because it's a cause for happiness. Probably for that person, but for sure for me. And all the little ways we can explore. Even if we're saving money, right? we can resolve to do something good with that money. Yeah, maybe it is appropriate for ha- us to have money in the bank, to have savings for, re- excuse me, for retirement or whatever it might be. But we can, well, we can do one of two things. We can cultivate in that savings, we can cultivate a sense of stinginess or we can cultivate a sense of generosity. I'm going to do something good with this money. And maybe taking care of myself, but it's going to be taking care of some being and I'm going to do what feels best with this money. So how do we cultivate happiness through understanding the lawfulness of it? So one is with generosity. Explore that. The other thing, the second thing the Buddha talked about, these actual roots of happiness that can't be stopped, you can't hide from, and the opposite, the causes for suffering. So the other one is this commitment to non-harming, what we might call ethical conduct or morality. But it's really this um, uncovering, this reverence, this respect for life in all ways. And of course, it's important to understand we never come to the end of it. So you may think you're somebody who doesn't hit doesn't steal, doesn't kill, but we're all involved in harming, all of us. I don't think it's possible. I can't imagine how it could be possible to be a living being and not be participating in the harming of other beings. So we're talking about a commitment to non-harming. Even if we never get all the way there, the commitment, the resolute commitment to non-harming is enlivening and a cause for happiness. Keeping that in mind as we live our life, it sounds oppressive. Like to be really concerned about global warming because we care about the living beings on this planet and those to come, it can sound oppressive. Oh, how many minutes can I be in the shower? How high should the thermostat be set for? Should I actually be buying this thing or not? Right? Because that approach is like, I should be good. And are they noticing? You know, are they, and how good do I have to be? Right? That's called being tight. That's called like trying, like judging ourselves or thinking other people are judging ourselves. But when we think about, like, we're at the, the thermostat or we're at the store buying something, the choice then, like, if, if we do something, because we, uh, we want to avoid harming, maybe we pay a little bit more for product where we maybe imagine that fewer beings are being harmed because of this purchase versus that one, but we're spending more money or something like that, and that hurts. But we want to see, uh, notice, like, I'm doing this because I care. I'm doing this because I revere life. I'm doing this because... I know how built in to being a living being not wanting to suffer is. And so I sense every other living being has that same wish to not suffer. So I care about 
I can't help it. If I care about this desire not to suffer, if I'm awake, if I pay attention, then I, I have to care about you. We have that sympathetic compassion. All it requires is waking up, you know, being sensitive. So if we, if we let the mind notice, like we tried to do at the beginning of the sit, that there are other tender-hearted beings in the room. Everybody in this room finds it difficult, at least some of the time, being a human being. Isn't that true? It isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy having relationships. It isn't easy figuring out how to feed ourselves. It isn't easy figuring out how to take responsibility for the world. Like, Should we just find our sort of proverbial cave where we're all, and let the messy world just suffer its own karma? Because I've removed myself and my beautiful little Minneapolis home, you know, my little bubble, whatever that might be. Or are we going to let our heart have, like it's not even building the roots, it's actually um, taking responsibility for the roots our heart has into all other beings. We're, we feel it. You know, when we let it in, I don't know how many times I've heard about refugees leaving Syria, but then, when was it? It was just recently I heard a news report on National Public Radio. Oh, I think it was on the way down. I taught yesterday at Northfield uh, in Minnesota, just an hour south of here. And on the way down, it was uh, the uh, weekend edition program. They had a a really poignant uh, report of some Italian people on ships um, taking care of a capsized boat. And, of course, several of the people were killed uh, leaving North Africa, coming across the Mediterranean. And it was just, for whatever reason, my heart let it in. And, you know, I mean, on the surface I cared and I knew it was a problem and I knew that somebody should respond. But it's always felt removed. But it's just a matter, I mean, this is how we should use our imagination, right? Because... We can imagine, you know what really got it is the guy, one of the Italian people on the, sh- on the boat taking care of these people, he talked about his own son, you know, and so this, these kids that were dead because of hypo- hyperthermia, you know, being the same age as his own kid. And just hearing him talk about the transparency, like not being able to separate his love for his own son and these parents' love for their own kid who's dead now, you know, and how that the kind of imprint it made on his heart. And because he was really even thousands of miles away through the radio waves, but the thing is uh, we all, we all sympathi- sympathetically vibrate together. So it's not a stretch. We just have to drop the idea of separation and then we feel it it matters these people matter in the same way that if the neighborhood kid who you you've watched grow up you know got hit by a car in your street it would probably make an impression on your heart well there are all kinds of things going on so can we feel responsible for that and actually 
that be a cause for happiness and enlivening happiness? Because compassion isn't a negative state of mind. Compassion is an enlivened and beautiful state of mind. Letting our heart be touched by the joys and suffering is not a heavy trip. It's an enlivening trip. And actually, it's just the opposite. Suffering is doing our best to be disconnected, to not be touched by the joys and sorrows happening around us. And not just with other human beings, all living beings. So this is what we can explore. So we can do it with generosity, but we can do it also with this reverence for life. And I'll just bring this up. I know it's controversial, but I think it's useful because it's so powerful. So the issue about eating meat, and uh, I've never advocated or told, like, or if you're going to practice, you should be a vegetarian. But the thing is, we want to take responsibility for these choices. So it's even if you think it's okay to eat meat, how much meat, right? What kind of meat? So... And again, not to sort of build a heavy trip in your mind because that's what leads people to just not wanting to deal with it. But see, wherever you are along that spectrum, never would touch any animal product to, what's the, the diet now? The paleo diet. Yeah, the paleo diet where you're eating a lot of usually um, animal protein. Um, so even if you're at that end of the spectrum, can you make your choices in a way like for the purpose of happiness arising in your heart? Like how do you do that in a way that makes you happy? So that you're not uh, sort of making these moral choices as a weight on your heart. Can the concern for other beings be a cause for happiness? Or does this just make us tight or not want to pay attention? So that's an, I'm inviting that exploration. Just see if you can tune into that reverence for life and on the margins, don't like, never again will I, just start exploring it as a cause for happiness, not a cause for me being this idea of a good person, but actually making your heart happy. Because that will lead you into this more resolute, like, I know the path. This works. So the Buddha mentioned three things. So there's generosity, and the opposite would be stinginess as a cause for unhappiness. Being generous, knowing how to let go, knowing how to be content with what you have. This is a cause for happiness. Reverence for life and all the different manifestations or feeling like it doesn't matter would be the cause for unhappiness. Feeling like it's not my responsibility, notice how that's a cause for the heart being tight. It's not my problem, not my responsibility. And then the third is, the Pali word is bhavana, um, which means the development of the heart or the cultivation of the heart is the third actual direct immediate cause for happiness, just in the same way that generosity is and reverence for life or this commitment to not harming is a cause for happiness. So when you sit, when you bring your attention back to the present moment, 
It's not because we should, because we want to impress, you know, or we're competitive and we want to be the most mindful person in the room. We do it because some way we sense it's a cause for happiness, like a direct and immediate cause. And the Buddha says in terms of these three things, it's not that we get happiness down the road, you know, 20 years later or whenever, but it's a cause for happiness in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So that we should feel immediately with any of these three things that the heart is getting lighter. It's not like we have to wait. It should feel good immediately. So you can just check it out. Like all the different ways we would develop or train the mind. And basically we're talking about more stability, more balance, more calm, more of the quality of kindness or gentleness or openness, more trust, trust in trusting the conditions of the moment. Like, I only have this moment to open to, so I need to cultivate and with time be resolutely committed to being open. Because if I practice not being open to this moment, then in the next moment of my life, I'll be better at not being open, right? So if we want to, if we really see being open in this clear and balanced way, what we call mindful, if we really see it as a direct and immediate cause for happiness, then we'll cultivate it, not because we should, in the same way that we would pick up money that we saw on the ground. It's like, oh yeah, money makes me happy, I'll pick it up, or I'll... Somebody says, well, I'll give you 10 bucks if you do this. Well, we'll do it because we want the money. So if we saw that in terms of generosity and this commitment to non-harming and the developing, the cultivation of the heart, the stability, the clarity, the balance of the heart and mind, we'll do it naturally. So Sylvia, she begins her book with this little chart, each chapter, where she does an overview, and I'll just read what she says about resoluteness. She, she translates it as uh, determination. She says, the practice of determination develops the habit of persevering, or you could say this quality of steadfastness or stick to develops the habit of persevering by seeing clearly into the cause of suffering, so that the resolve to change habits of mind becomes spontaneous, right? When we see the causes for suffering or the cause for happiness, the energy to develop happiness or to put down the cause for unhappiness is spontaneous. We don't have to do it. You know, the obvious example is like if you're holding something hot and you see that the holding of it is the cause for the burning feeling you have, you let go. The letting go is a spontaneous act. So the more we connect generosity with happiness, this commitment to non-harming, living in a way that doesn't cause harm, to happiness, developing the clarity, balance, stability of the mind as a cause for happiness, we move in those directions, we cultivate those three things spontaneously, naturally. She says here that these are the energizing aspects of this path. 
right? Where the energy comes from knowing that it's the cause for suffering. In the same way, you know how we can, the Buddha uses the example, some of you know, like if you throw fat on a really hot pan, it kind of shrinks, shrivels, right? He uses that image um, that when the mind sees clearly what causes happiness, it naturally backs away. Like, oh, I don't want to do that. I was once, way, way back in the 80s, I, I was teaching out in California, uh, elementary school teaching, and I had a day off, or it must have been, I forget, summer vacation or weekend, and I was up on the top of Mount Diablo, which is just outside of the Bay Area, a beautiful big mountain, um, and I was meditating, and uh, and uh, I heard something. I'm glad I opened my eyes, because there was a rattlesnake coming right at me. I was just sitting on the ground, and I don't know how I did it, because back then I could sit in a half lotus, <laughs> and uh, and all of a sudden I, I noticed I was standing, and I was sitting on the ground, and I was just standing, and then, of course, the snake rose up. But that sort of spontaneous, like, whoa, I do not want to be in the path of this guy. That just happened. I didn't have to think. I better get up. There's a snake coming my way. I just got up. And that's how when the more we do the work of connecting the dots, like what actually leads to contracted states, and what actually leads to the release of the heart, liberated states of mind, then the work just happens. The power of resolute commitment just happens. Because it's so frustrating when we do this superficially. Like we sort of know we should stop doing something, or we sort of know we should start doing something, but nothing happens. I mean, we kind of whip up some sort of, like we're going to be committed, only to be disappointed a few days later when there we are doing the same old thing, not following through with our commitment, doing the bad thing. So what uh, somebody following the path that the Buddha said emotion does is, like I mentioned, wisdom understands the causes and really digs into the causes. So let me just finish this before opening up the discussion. So the practice of determination develops the habit of persevering by seeing clearly into the cause of suffering so that the resolve to change habits of mind becomes spontaneous and is supported by validating through direct experience, so this is our work, supported by validating through direct experience the possibility of a peaceful mind and consolidating through repeated experience the spiritual faculty of faith. So, in a Buddhist, from a Buddhist perspective, faith isn't something we believe in. Faith is the energy in the heart, in the mind, that comes out of direct experience. This is what I meant by connecting the dots. We connect the dots over and over again. Then we have faith that this leads to suffering and this other thing leads to happiness. And we have faith. So it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what our parents tell us doesn't matter what our teachers tell us because we've paid enough attention, we've collected enough data from our own experience that it doesn't matter. We know when I act in these ways, when I think in these ways, my mind gets contracted and entangled and heavy states, difficult states. And when I act in these other ways, relate in these other ways, 
views come, live out of these other views, then these liberated, beautiful, loving states of mind arise. I always like to, or the last part here is, um, and manifests as tenacity, right? Because that's the, like when you've cultivated, when you've done enough of the connecting of doubt, uh, of connecting of the doubts, the dots, right? <laughs> so you have that confidence, that faith, then that's when we see somebody who's tenacious. They don't give up because they know no matter how difficult it is, no matter how many times habit energy gets in the way, I'm going to start over again because I have no doubt that this will work. I have to just keep feeding it. Because just because we have confidence doesn't mean it's the biggest habit in the mind. Like I might have a lot of confidence that when I'm sitting, being alert and actually interested in what's happening in the present moment makes all the difference in the world. Right? That doesn't mean I don't have distractedness in my sits and superficiality in the mind, thinking about things it doesn't need to think about. Yeah, it's still there. You know, Even after 33 years of practice, it's still there. But I have a lot of resoluteness. Like when I notice that, I notice I don't want to continue that. Like I'm not fooled once I see it. When I'm lost in the habit energy, when I'm lost in the habit energy, there's nothing to do. But when I see that, then that tenacity arises. Like planning this, worrying about this, judging this person, hating myself, or whatever else my mind might be doing. It is not the cause for happiness. It's the cause for stress. And I come back to the breath or I come back to the body or I notice the suffering in that. But I don't consciously let my mind hang out because I know better, because I've connected the dots long enough. And there's a growing tenaciousness when we see. When we're not seeing, there's nothing we can do. When we're not mindful, how can we do anything, right? There's only skill, there's only a wise response when the mind sees what's going on. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from you what you've been learning in your practice and questions you have and uh, comments about this experience of resoluteness or what has gotten in the way of resoluteness. And if you're new, remember you got to ha- hold the mic pretty close, not like this. It actually has to point at your mouth like this. So who'd like to begin? And if you do begin, it's always good, nice to hear your name too. So what questions do you have or comments? Anybody experience some resoluteness? Thanks for being brave. Uh. My name is Mary. Can you hear me? Okay. Boy, your talks, Mark, always um, bring something to mind. And um, when you were talking about the resoluteness, I, um, in the last year, well, two years ago, I moved back here from uh, California and I've been doing um, some pretty intense personal growth work and coming to a lot of stuff here at Common Ground and um, have been 
changing some habits, um, just some behavioral kind of stuff, the way I interact with people and so on. And, um, you know, I've had, life gives you these opportunities constantly to practice new behavior. I've noticed. And so I've been doing that and I've gotten these glimpses of kind of what you're talking about. Um, when I practice new, healthier behavior, I feel really good. And I don't want to go back to practicing the old behavior. So that actually makes it really easy to change to the new behavior on a more regular basis. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And it, and you can hear, too, and how Mary described it, like if we get afraid, the fear isn't helpful, but use the energy of fear. It's like we're a kind of alchemy where we're transforming the quality of fear into this, um, confidence. Well, if I really don't want this to happen, then I need to understand the causes. So you review in our mind, okay, well, how did the heart get so light and easy? Oh, yeah, this is what I cultivated. And what doesn't work? Oh, yeah, these other ways don't work. And because just reviewing that in our mind is enlivening. Because like, basically what we're doing is, oh, my goodness, this mind understands the path like the path to happiness and the path to suffering. I'm not deluded as much as I used to be. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Did you want to go? Who would like to go next? Thoughts, comments about uh, this energy of resoluteness, what gets in the way for you, what you've learned through the twists and turns of your life? Yeah, right behind you. Uh, so my name is Dan. Um, so your comments about sort of noticing and connecting the dots with respect to generosity um, resonated with me. My wife and I, uh, every year we give a portion of our income to charity. And uh, we'd always kind of done this at the end of the year, usually um, sort of at the last minute. Um, and it was always sort of motivated out of a sense of guilt with sort of we have so much money and at least compared to how many, you know, other people in the world and, um, and, you know, sort of as an act of trying to rid ourselves of the guilt to give away some, you know, some amount that we'd agreed on. Um, and then we never really thought about it any of the rest of the year and we never talked about it at all except under this sort of, um, you know, December 29th trying to <laughs> right. Um, and, um, and I, you know, I've been coming to the center now for a little over a year and, um, and it sort of, we tried to, I at least tried to do it a little differently this year. And it, it wasn't even that we did anything particularly differently, but to sort of have a different attitude towards it and to not be kind of ashamed of this thing yeah. that we did, you know, that we were giving money away. Um, and to try to think a little more about, what were the good things that were going to happen because we were supporting some causes that we believe in. Um, and I think before I would have thought of that as sort of a kind of taking pride or taking, you know, sort of uh, trying to take credit for this in a way that felt kind of gross to, you know, my particular right. set of conditions. Um, and I think this year we sort of managed to at least try to view it in a different way, even like I would never have talked about it before 
even in these circumstances because right. that seems like sort of taking credit for this and um and this seems more this seems better and it you know and it and it does it sort of inspires me to maybe be a little more generous next year even when this comes around yeah thanks so much that's a really good example of it and and like you said you know just to we shouldn't assume that being anonymous in our giving is always right. I mean, you can definitely imagine giving and really wanting acknowledgement as being neurotic. But it also can be neurotic to give and to want to, want to be anonymous or needing to be anonymous. Because it, it should be a kind of celebration. If it's, not, if it's actually a good thing, it should feel good. And then it's even we should feel good if somebody else is feeling good. So if somebody gives something and, we, and they tell us about it, that should make us happy because we know that they're happy that they've given something away. And even something that you might not think of, like we're all probably about to do our taxes in the next month or so, and we could do it grudgingly or we could, um, and you know, I'm... I personally don't like how some of our tax money is being spent, you know, in terms of weapons or whatever, the kind of destruction. But we can feel good about giving because some of that money is doing things that needs to be done, that we want to have done. And why not appreciate that we can contribute to the pool that helps to take care of people in need, that helps to build, you know, bridges and roads and do a lot of things that actually need to be done. And as imperfect as our society is, it can be a lot worse. And to own the fact that we're part of this and not to hate the giving, but to really participate in And those of you who've been around know that we try to do this at the center with the circle of freely giving and freely receiving. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We have time for a couple more folks. Other thoughts, yeah. Pass it back to Nick. Hi, Nick. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if this, this is kind of based around generosity, but I really like hearing about, or like the practice locks. I like to be able to experiment in my daily life in different ways with different things and see how it feels um, for my heart and mind. And I was doing a practice for a little while at work in my break room, and I called the cookie practice because I would buy a cookie and go on my break, and I started to, um, I have a couple coworkers who um, would always share their food with me, and they seemed like really happy people, so I thought I would try it out with <laughs> the cookie practice and see how it felt to give, like, I'd buy a cookie, and I'd, like, break it in half and be like, would you like some, you know, to whoever was around me, but it was really funny, because, like, I would notice that sometimes I'd be like, I don't really like that person that much, so I'd give them a smaller piece, of, or not, like, like, but, like, I'd be, this is, they're getting a smaller piece of cookie, or, like, you know, or, like, I, I'm like, I want more of this cookie, so I'm willing to give them, like, give away a little bit, and so I was just kind of watching myself go through that process, and it was really, it's really interesting, and I even stopped doing it, I haven't done it for a while, and I started to notice, like, I'd be on, my job, my break room is a small break room, and during the summertime, I like to go out to the park and sit in a park near my work, and it's really relaxing, but I have to be in the break room during the wintertime, and I hate being in the break room, and I started to notice I'd get really irritated with whoever was sitting next to me, like, to be on their phone, and I'd be like, oh my god, like, I hate when people are on their phone, so I was like, I gotta institute the cookie practice again, because I need to, like, be able to, because I couldn't, like, reach out to anyone, I didn't want to say hi to them, I didn't want to talk to them, so I was, like, trying to find that little simple way to just, like, 
break you know break out of that stingy feeling so it's kind of a cool yeah cool thing to observe yeah. oh it's so great to hear that nick and because it's such a practical example of a human being taking responsibility for suffering and happiness and just it's like a little experiment where i got this 30 minute break room time and why not use it to learn a little bit about the causes for happiness and suffering and that study alone is enlivening. It feels so good because the opposite would feel would be to feel helpless, you know, just put upon. Yeah, thanks, Nick, for sharing that. Time for one more person. Yeah, please. Hello, I'm Sophia. Maybe even a little closer, oh, Sophia. I'm Sophia. Hi. <laughs> um, when you were talking about being mindful of other people's emotions well maybe you weren't talking about that but I find it very difficult because my natural state is very kind and having a lot of compassion and I do find it very difficult when people who are close to me or people around me make like ruder comments it's hard for me to understand where they're coming from because I just don't come from a place like that and I just uh I need to remember to stay mindful that um not everyone thinks like that and that's kind of difficult to do yeah but you can you probably have enough sensitivity like if you learn you have to practice not being afraid to be in messy situations or in negative situations because if you can stabilize your presence there then you'll see that their negativity is causing suffering for them right and then you'll relate with compassion. It doesn't mean you'll go along with it, of course. It just means you won't be afraid of who they are or what they're doing. And if there's something you can say or do that out of compassion for them and for whatever suffering they're setting in motion, you'll do it. If, not, if there's nothing you can do, well then, like some situations, it may not be appropriate to say anything. But at least... You don't, uh, we don't want to be afraid of meanness, nastiness, unskillfulness, because there's a lot of it. And that just causes us to want to retreat from life. Life is messy. And at any given time, you know, it's, we, we understand how minds get negative. Your mind may not get negative like theirs, but there may be other ways that your mind gets negative whether it's self-hatred or doubt or other things your mind, mind states you can get lost in. So this is just their version of, you know, personality habits where they get negative or they get in contracted states. So we have compassion. I know what it's like to be a suffering human being. Right? It seems to me, as much as I can understand, you're in a suffering state. You know, being negative about somebody else, putting somebody else down, that's a contracted state. Even if it's just coming from being disconnected, they're not even being angry, but they're just disconnected. But even that is a contracted state. It's not a pleasant state to be disconnected. So just see that and let your heart respond with, it isn't easy being a human being. Yeah, thanks. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together.
in a moment to appreciate all the women, all the men who have done their practice before us. And of course, they had busy lives, but one way or another, they did their practice, became wise and more compassionate, and somehow shared what they've learned to the next generation. And over so many centuries, now we're the recipients of these teachings. It's our turn and our busy lives to do our best to cultivate these teachings and to become part of the causes for real happiness and peace and freedom from suffering, both in our hearts but also in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.